news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Hi everyone, we've got two special guests here with us today. It's Patrick and Ami who run Guts Like Press and we get these queries all the time from our listeners. Should they be submitting to presses and to journals? Should they be trying to get publishing accreditation so that they can put something on their bio? And we're always saying try and publish as much as you can because it does make your resume look good. So this is why we've got Patrick and Ami on today to discuss how they run their press, the kind of submissions they get and what kind of things you as writers are doing wrong in terms of your submissions that stop them from getting chosen to be published. So firstly, Patrick and Ami, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So will you tell us a bit more about Guts Like Press, how it came about, who your target audience is, how you run that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so Gutslut Press is definitely designed to be an alternative press. We very much want all the work that basically is hard to market, all the stuff that doesn't really get into traditional publishing. We want that kind of work. We're very concerned with a lot of the politics in publishing currently because it definitely limits a lot of opportunities for marginalized people, especially BIPOC. So we're working pretty hard to counter that. And we're also just trying to get a lot of 
weird stuff. We want truths. We want the weird, just anything. Like it's such a broad spectrum because we just want everything. And and in terms of like genre and stuff specifically, uh, are there specific genres that you like to see as well? Besides, you know, that kind of being your target market in, in terms of who the writers are, who you would like to submit to you? What, what genres do you specifically enjoy? We, we kind of uh, allow like any kind of genre, like we typically these more experimental writers who submit to us are very cross genre. Like it's all, it's very hard to pin down. Um, you get, you get a good amount of horror. You get some like transgressive fiction. You get a lot of interesting prose, poetry, things like that, that kind of basically, if you can, if you can't pin down the genre, then it's probably more for us than anything. Yeah. I love that because, yeah, you know, the genre is such a tricky thing. And as writers, we're always getting told you need to be able to tell an agent and an editor where in the bookstore your book will be positioned. And so it makes you less experimental and it makes you kind of stick and color in the lines more as opposed to having more freedom of expression. Is And that's obviously what you've been finding as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because because yeah, uh, you know, yeah, like you said, agents and publishers are looking for things they can market for to maximize profit, whereas we're looking for ways to maximize like voice voices. So it doesn't matter if we sell five books as opposed to five hundred, because we would rather um, those five people who got those books have that deep connection to what we're publishing um, to have to hear a voice that maybe they didn't hear before and they suddenly have a new connection with the world and with writing and things like that. We have a lot of rule breakers. Even the people who stay more in a genre at that point, then it's mostly the content, which ends up being experimental. And we also really like multimedia work. We honestly encourage people to send us something that we can't publish because we want to publish it. Yeah. And and do you focus more on sort of shorter forms of fiction in anthologies or do you look at full manuscripts? Like where is your focus there? Right now we we so we have an anthology with submissions open. But we don't actually ever post to like a maximum word count. We're just kind of like on an honor system. We also have, we had chapbook submissions open uh, last month for a little bit. So we have those and full manuscripts are going to be in the future, but we we aren't accepting them quite yet. But yeah, that is something that we are hoping to do in the future. Amazing. All right. So let's have a look at what are the top 10 reasons that you perhaps won't publish someone's work that they submitted to you. And these are the kinds of things that you find problematic within the work. Can we go through them from like the 10th one and we work our way up to number one? Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. One of the big ones is cultural appropriation. If we see cultural appropriation in a work, for example, because we have a lot of people include their their bios and if they'd like any identifiers. So then if we know the identifiers and then we open a story and there's clear cultural appropriation occurring, we just on good consciousness, like we just can't accept it, which is sometimes really sad because it means we have to reject some just very strong work from some very strong writers. In that case, sometimes we try to gently tell them that way it doesn't occur again. But yeah, we can only do so much. Yeah, we typically try to like encourage maintaining your own viewpoint. So like if somebody is writing, try if somebody like desperately is inspired to write about a very certain culture or concept that isn't their own, then making sure that narrative voice is from their own perspective, not trying to claim it as their own so that we can understand that 
coming from this specifically, like, I don't want to say biased place, but from their own biases that, and it's, it's not like just trying to um, like take from any of that, those cultures or anything. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Number nine. So this is kind of generalized, but for fiction, um, I typically do more of the fiction. I mean, typically does more of the poetry. We do both read all of it, but that is more of where, where we're focused. So for the fiction one, it's fiction that doesn't necessarily have like an intention outside of plot. So like, while we're not opposed to just publishing stories that do tell a beautiful story, just on the surface level, there is no deeper meaning or intention. Typically, especially with the kind of submitters we have, the kind of readers we're going to have, just the kind of people we are, if you're not writing for like a greater purpose to like make people think us like think um, or maybe try to persuade people a certain way about a concept, then um, then the writing typically isn't powerful, like powerful in that same way that we would want to publish. Okay, awesome. Number eight. Let's see. From there, I'll actually move into one we have specifically for poetry. Um, it's it's a very interesting just poetry culture right now. Poetry is very much in the mainstream. It's on Instagram and things like that. And it's really wonderful on an accessibility level. But sometimes I think people feel a certain pressure to write poems that have these really strong hooks and these like hard hitting thesis statements almost. And sometimes they don't fit well. Sometimes trying to make the poem clever or um, yeah, sometimes trying to make the poem like too clever, it ruins what would otherwise be a really nice poem. It disrupts the flow. Um, so that's one thing that sometimes I've had to, we've had to reject poems for is just that attempt to make it witty in a way that doesn't fit the poem. I promise you all your poems, your poems are fine. You don't, you don't need the hard hook for it. And the other thing is sometimes prose that tries too hard to be a poem in stanza form. Um, sometimes at that point, it's almost better you just submit a paragraph and say it's poet, um, poetic prose or something. I don't think too many editors really care about that. But when it's all um, forced in a traditional stanza farm, form that it, it's not very readable. And sometimes we do have to reject that. Do you find that like the poetry fashions change according to who's speaking loudest in poetry at the moment or, or not really? Um. I would say, yeah, um, one of the biggest examples is actually Rupi Kaur. You know, it, it's really, there's so many great things about her work. She's, you know, she's definitely um, diversified the landscape, made a lot of room for a lot of poets who are usually not allowed into the industry. But the thing is, because she was so successful and she influenced so many people, we see we see a lot of submissions from people who are trying to be her or poets like her. And we're like, no, we, we just, we want to, and, and it feels forced when it's not a natural thing. So at that point, sometimes it's like, don't worry about who's popular right now. Like, who are you as a poet? We'd rather mm -hmm. have that. Yeah. And I think that's true of, you know, all forms. It's not just poetry. It's as a writer, finding your voice. You know, it's great to learn from other writers, but the goal is not to emulate their voice, but to appreciate their writing and in the process, find, find your own voice. 100%. Yeah, we have a we have a professor who um, often says, like, by the time you see what's happening in the mainstream, what's going to happen is already occurring, like under in the underground literary world. And and so, yeah, if you're if you're trying to emulate someone like that or like anybody that you're reading that you're finding on like the bestseller list, there's already something that you could be doing to like revolutionize poetry. So so that's where you should be going. Yeah, absolutely. OK, your next point. 
just generally, uh, this kind of goes with cultural appropriation, but using slurs that aren't people's to claim, we aren't necessarily opposed to slurs. They just need to belong to you, you know? So like, we would never want to censor somebody's experience with with racism if if like they need to include a racist slur or homophobia, if they need to uh, include a homophobic slur, that kind of thing. But if it's somebody, and, and we get these identifiers in the bio, so we know typically whether or not these are slurs that belong to these people. And, and yeah, that's just like an instant rejection. Like if you are that comfortable using that kind of language, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how prominent that is with more traditional publishers, if it's more or less prominent, but we definitely get more experimental voices. So I think people are like slightly more comfortable submitting those types of things that they might think don't belong in more traditional publishing. Cause I think sometimes we get like a little misinterpreted as people who are comfortable with everything that's like taboo. Whereas we, you know, do maintain our own personal politics within this press and, and we're not trying to uplift voices that maybe, you know, shouldn't necessarily be uplifted in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, just an example of that. And we were having this conversation with friends the other day. Like if I get called a bitch by a straight cis man, that really pisses me off. Um, But, you know, as a woman, I call my friends who are women bitches. We call each other bitches all the time. And we do it as a term of endearment and a way of kind of taking back this thing that we were told our whole lives we bitches because we talk back or we bitches because we have opinions or whatever. And so that's the thing. There's many, many um, communities that have taken back slurs that have been used against them and they've used it in empowering ways. But, you know, like you say, it's um, it's up to that community to be using their, their own slurs kind of thing. Yeah. Great. Next one. Let's see. Um, since we're on this topic, I'll go ahead and come in with basically people who tell stories that aren't theirs to tell. For example, let's say you're like, because this is something I've seen recently, I think we've both seen it recently, is say you're um, an able-bodied person and you decide to create a disabled protagonist, but their disability is something you're using as a prop to say propel plot line like you're using it as a plot device and you know and and you can you can tell and it's a very uncomfortable angle and voice and it just it feels all wrong and basically just people who are telling stories that aren't theirs to tell or like a white person talking on racism in a way like writing from the perspective of like a person of color or something we just um on good consciousness we just we can't publish it we'd rather leave that room for people who these stories belong to those are the people who need this space um and the privileged group has been telling people's stories long enough so we want to make that space for the authentic voices of marginalized people yeah a really big one with that too is it tends to be um sexual assault it seems like a lot of men are comfortable writing those types of stories from the perspective of women and while we would never assume that somebody isn't the victim of sexual assault just because they are men there is like a certain tonality that you can tell you know it's it's a different perspective yeah yeah absolutely there's a kind of tone deafness that that comes through in Mm -hmm. in that yeah great next one so we do we've we've seen this a little bit too we do love like religious and non-religious and you can even be like slightly anti-religious if you do it with a lot of nuance but there are those like 
there's a very specific voice. It especially comes through with like white men in the US and the UK where it's anti-Christian or like very specific, like anti-faith or it can be Islamophobic poetry where it's, it's basically just rather than either helping build up your own beliefs or building up the beliefs that you see or like a certain beauty within religion. It's, it's very much like that kind of, you know, checkmate, look how clever and smart I am. Um, And you can see that among like other things outside of religion, but like, it seems very specifically pointed at religion. And so it's like the kind of poem um, that, or like story that you see where, you know, they just, they feel very much like they are ironically preaching, I suppose. Whereas instead of like trying to express something that, that maybe they're struggling with, like we've had several like struggling with religion type poems or stories that I thought were very good. And there's like, a very subtle difference, but it's a very important difference. It's especially important because a lot of people's, especially in the Western world, a lot of people's issues with Christianity as they've experienced it, they believe is a frame of reference to refer every religion, um, faith or spirituality all over the world. And, you know, and they're just bashing it based on this one framework. And it's actually extremely harmful to a lot of like BIPOC people who are practicing our religions and stuff and just kind of minding our own business. And like, you know, it's, there's definitely some basis in white supremacy a lot of these times. And so we like, we love, we love work across this spectrum, but when there is like a bashing of religious people, we really, we don't like that because we're trying to, because of the fact that there's like so many cultural and racial implications with religion, a lot of the time we're kind of trying to bring religion into a punkier light. Like we think it's pretty punk that in this world where everyone's telling you, you know, God sucks, religion sucks, religion is dead to continue like upholding your religion and then also be anti-establishment and writing like crazy stuff. We, we think that's great. So we're trying to encourage that energy, if anything. Wonderful. Okay, what's the next one? This one's kind of probably an obvious one, but it's one I don't think editors get to talk about too much. And it's just work that doesn't go with our vibe or our theme. We've had to reject a lot of really good work just because we can't find a place for it, which is extra heartbreaking because we actively try to fight for every piece of work we get. Sometimes we even, if we have an idea of something we're doing in the future that where a piece might fit, we'll ask writers if they're okay with having that acceptance there instead. But yeah, I I really and strongly encourage submitters to very closely look at the vibe or theme. And if you're not sure to just email whatever publication you're if they allow it because we hate rejecting work for that reason it makes us really sad yeah like we actually do have quite a few um from our current anthology submissions where where we're like this is perfect for the next one we haven't actually even announced the next one we already have like five pieces accepted into it so it's yeah it it is very it hurts a lot we do we do end up like fighting very hard to try to just figure out like trying to justify how we can publish this within the theme and like the the tone of what we're trying to do yeah it's it's in a culture where publishing is just saying no 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 it's lovely to see people who are trying to find reasons to say yes so so that's very encouraging okay what else um this one is more specific to us i mean like there are other publishers but um we have like very specific and vocal leftist politics and so if there's a way or if there if there's a story i think it'd be obvious not to submit something that's like pro certain things but if you take like a neutral stance on certain things like that's kind of a complacency so like especially given what's occurred over, I mean, this has never not occurred, but given like the prominence of like 
defunding or abolishing police, that kind of thing. You know, if you submit a story that feels we're like cops are the main character and it feels very much like pro police or even like just a neutral stance on police, we probably won't accept it. And it's that kind of like, it's not just police, but that's like a very, that's happened a few times with this last publication uh, cycle. And so it's like, we want to make sure that the voices that we uplift aren't paired right next to something that like actively harms them in real life, just because it's fiction uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's not harmful, but it's like, you know, it's especially, yeah. Cause it is like, especially harmful to like BIPOC communities, queer communities, disabled communities, things like that. And usually the people who submit that don't belong to those communities. Cause it's, that's not on their radar. They're just like, you know, they've seen all these like law and order type shows. And so that's just like kind of where narratives can develop. And so just having like those types of protagonists kind of just lets them get to the plot that they want to tell. And I think there are other ways to, to tell those plots. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if our listeners always know, you know, do your homework and know who the audience is, who you're submitting to, know their politics, know, you know, the kind of things they're interested in, et cetera, because otherwise you're wasting your time and you're wasting their time as well. Because, you know, if they're going to read every submission and it's not a good fit like that, then everyone's time has been wasted. What else? One of the really big ones is the negligence of or mistreatment of marginalized bodies, communities, cultural cultures, um, important places, for example. And sometimes we like see this. Um, honestly, it's a lot of times with white people. But like, say the story is like about some kind of debauchery, which we absolutely love. But then like they're describing the environment. And I don't know, let's say there's like a Buddhist temple in the back or something and that's just in their backdrop or say it's like there's a bunch of like dead bodies of like women or queer people or trans people or something and it's just being used as like a prop um we really don't like that especially because um so many of the bodies and items and things like and places that end up in these situations are things that are just systemically under attack and this is like especially with like black and brown bodies it's just it's it's an immediate no like we can love we can love the whole thing and then we just see that like it could be like two words in a whole story and um we just like can't be okay with it yeah like we we like there will sometimes be notes like i love this do you think we could get them to edit out this one sentence or this one word um and sometimes sometimes it feels more right to just suggest the edit and then sometimes it's like well i'm not you know i'm not sure if if that would change the tone of the story or that might like change the tone of the story entirely to the point that it's just not the right fit for us overall that kind of thing as a as a person who i'm a part of so many of these marginalized communities and with him you know being my number one supporter and he's you know we're just we just have generally leftist politics and stuff it's like the minute we see something like that it's like it, it feels very 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 deeply personal and sometimes it just leaves like a taste in our mouth that we can't get out mm-hmm. and so sometimes even though it could be fixed we just don't have it in us to fix it and we just have to reject it yeah and again that speaks to knowing your audience i mean just uh a silly example. It's not the same as what you were saying, but I've loved, consistently loved the Netflix show Sex Education because, you know, there's so much representation in there and the humor's great and it looks at body positivity, etc. And I couldn't wait for season three and I got to episode three of season three. And for purely gratuitous reason, a cat was brutally killed by a microwave that fell on the cat and blood splattered everywhere because a couple was having very violent sex in this trailer uh, and that made the microwave move 
And I just, a show that I've always loved, it's just immediately stopped there and I will not watch another episode of it because of that. And, you know, we've spoken on the podcast, we've we've got agents on the podcast who read work and they've said both, you know, what their issues are that they will not read for anything, no matter how good the writing is. So again, this is something as writers you need to be aware of. And if you're writing those kinds of things, definitely don't be submitting it to people who are going to have such a visceral reaction to it. So, so always know who you're submitting to uh, and why you've chosen that particular place. What else? Have we got any things left? What are we left with? There's one and it's definitely, I think, our biggest one. It's something we've heard from other editors and now, especially for us and even for me, because I'm currently an editor at two other places, Rongjing Magazine and Decolonial Passage. And this seems to be the biggest thing. And it's just lack of authentic or signature voice like anything that's like generic, like I want, I want to be able to see it and be like, wow, you know, this person's personality is shining through, their voice is shining through. This is weird. This is new. Yeah. Any things that aren't very voice driven are extremely hard for us to get into. Basically, um, like just the best way to avoid this is to just, you know, be yourself, which I know sounds cheesy. And I know a lot of people say it's unmarketable, but with us being yourself goes a really long way. And if you're not sure what your voice is, the best way to fix that is just um, reading and writing a lot, because I promise eventually you'll stumble into it and then your work will really shine. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, it's not a statement of to the quality of the work either. Cause you know, there are things early on in our submission cycle where I was like, yes, this is fantastic. And we, we, accepted you know some of those poems and then by the time we got to where we are now it's like well I've read this before because and I know we accepted those other ones but we can't have an entire anthology of just this exact same voice so like even sometimes that even comes down to just timing like the the person who submitted first gets to have that voice and now no one else does because you're all kind of aiming for the same exact poetic voice or or fiction voice and and yeah just having your own voice will immediately stand out you know there are times where we've texted each other at like two in the morning like we have to accept this now before somebody else does kind of thing and it's that kind of excitement that we look for whereas the other ones whereas other ones will you know like we we end up just having to reject them because like we we've read that poem we read that poem last week and the week before and the week before and and voice is such a difficult thing to define you know I always say you know voice when you see it we oh, when you read it you know we have so many listeners like give a definition of voice but again that comes from reading and 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 writing and voice is just magical like when you read that submission and it makes you text each other at two o'clock in the morning because it was just so special you damn well know it when it happens you know mm-hmm. so yeah mm-hmm. absolutely so if any of our listeners want to submit to you. Can can you kind of tell them if they do want to submit to you, where they can find you and how, how they might go about doing this? They can find us. We're most active on Twitter, which is um, at Gutslut Press. We also have an Instagram, which is Instagram.com slash Gutslut Press. You can always email us, even if it's not a submission, even if it's just a question, uh, gutslutpress at gmail.com. The website is... Website gutsletpress.wordpress.com we're still trying to operate on that free domain but yeah these are all good places to reach us Um, we're especially active on twitter and in our email instagram messages go a little bit more slowly but we do get to them Mm -hmm. amazing the upcoming open call is we're basically doing a suicidal aliens theme which we're keeping very broad but we basically we want like really fun stuff we want weird like sci-fi alien stuff but we also want people's stories of say like self-harm disorders addictions things like that like we want that gritty stuff too 
Amazing. Well, thank you so much, uh, Patrick and Omi, for taking time to chat with me. You know, for our listeners, there are so many different avenues available to you out there. We've all been kind of brainwashed as writers that we just want to go with, you know, traditional publishing with the big five, etc. And it does create the sort of herd mentality and it does curb creativity to a, to a large degree because we're trying to tick the boxes in terms of what people want and what these big publishers want. But, you know, there are other presses out there. There's other journals out there and familiarize yourself with them and reach out to them. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, Other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime measure- membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup 
for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is the author of the novels The Ancestor, Slow Down, The Mentor from St. Martin's Press, The Desire Card, Orange City, and the young adult series Runaway Train and Grenade Bouquets. His books are in various stages of development for film and TV. He's been published in multiple languages and is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Fringe, dedicated to publishing fiction that's outside of the box. It's my pleasure to welcome Lee Matthew Goldberg. Lee, welcome to the show. How lovely to get to chat to you today. Thanks for taking the time to spend with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. Awesome. Well, we're going to dive in with our lightning right. round of questions that it. I'm just going to fling at you. And, and if there's something that is interesting along the way, we'll just stop the damn lightning round and we'll <laughs> go straight into asking you more about that. Okay, okay perfect. First, first, are you a plotter or a pantser? I used to be a pantser and now I am firmly a plotter. I plot out pretty much every chapter before I start a book, almost like a screenplay. Um, and it makes me write so much faster than I ever used to. So I don't think I'm going back. Is it because you then pivoted to screenplays that you did this or was it something else that made you change? Yeah, I think they kind of happened organically. Like I started to write screenplays and it just helped me so much in terms of structuring my own novels. Um, and like my first novel took me years to write and now I could write them in about six months. So I don't know. I, why go back? Yeah, absolutely. And if it takes you six months to write, how long does it take you to do the actual plotting? The plotting could be fast. Like if, if I've been thinking about a book for a while, sometimes it could take me like three weeks to plot a book, sometimes longer. Usually books kind of marinate in my head for about a year before I actually sit down and plot it. Yeah. And, you know, for our listeners, you tend to think that once a writer's published, it means every book that they write then gets published. But that isn't the case. You know, right. you can you can write your first book, publish it and the second and third nobody wants and then you publish your fourth. So mm. it's really helpful to only spend six months writing a novel, because if you've spent 10 years writing a novel that nobody then wants, that's been an incredible waste of time. Right. I mean, Donna Tartt can do it, but she could basically publish anything. But yeah, like my first book that I signed with my agent, um, I've never published. So you never know. Maybe one day, maybe one day somebody will want it. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Anthony Dewar takes as long as well. But like you say, you if take you, the time. Yeah. If you if you that author, everybody's clamoring for it. But for the rest of us, you know, uh, you could spend two years on something and then it gets rejected and you're back to square one. So that definitely oh. is a is a time saver. Do you write on computer or in longhand? Sometimes I'll take notes longhand, but I firmly write on, on my laptop always. Yes. Great. Do you like writing more in private or in public? And this is, we are referring to when the world opens up again right? <laughs> and when sure. you're allowed to go to cafes again. So for me, it's a mix. I write most of the time in Central Park when the weather's nice. So there are people around, but they're not on top of me and I could overhear their conversations. So it makes me feel not so introverted and a little more social, but I have the nice quiet space to write. Yeah. Cafes are tough. I could do screenwriting in cafes, but novel writing, not so much. For me, it's a problem because I love eavesdropping too much. I mm -hmm. love eavesdropping.
eavesdropping on other I mean, people's conversations. That's what makes a writer. You know, I'll totally take dialogue from things I've overheard before in life. Sometimes the best dialogue comes from that. When I do that, that's when I get told my dialogue wasn't realistic. Really? <laughs> Don't listen to those haters. Forget them. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, well, people say a lot of weird shit, man. So I know. So maybe I know. that tell maybe me that about, is tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, maybe that is true. Do you share your work while you're drafting, or do you wait until the very end to share it with anyone? Yeah, I wait until the end. I now have a few. They're not writers; they're just readers. Um, so I'll give them an early draft. Um, and my agent Sam is always the first to kind of see it. Um, and that's about it i don't i don't really give my work to writers i feel like sometimes writers want to fix too much they want to put their own stamp on it so I, I i avoid that now later drafts when it's done and you're you know sending for blurbs and stuff like that that's that's when other writers see it yeah and that's important for our listeners to remember there's many of you who have recently been uh, sorted into writing groups i sorted 700 writers into writing groups mm -hmm. and that's something to definitely you know keep in mind um in terms of the kind of critique you're going to take and implement and and the kind of things that you, you know, are going to discard is, is when someone else is trying to put their stamp, as Lee says, on, on your own work. So that's that's a really good point. I do think, though, can I, can I just add one thing? Mm. Um, I think, you know, when you're starting out as a writer, it's so important. Like I had a writing group. I did an MFA program and learning what critique to take and what critique not to take, I think, is one of the first biggest steps in kind of, you know, your whole writer journey. So it's so crucial. I think once you get to a certain point, though, then, you know, you, you don't need it as much. Yeah. And, and that's something that you are going to have to develop through trial and error, yes. mm -hmm. because the only way you can come at it and, and eventually becomes instinctive or, you know, instinctual is that you are learning along the way. You know, you're changing mm -hmm. something that in your gut you didn't want to change. And then later you're going, oh, I shouldn't have changed that. I should have stuck with how I saw it. But also it's our natural inclination to kind of go, this is bullshit. Every time someone has a problem right. with our work and we mm -hmm. tend to immediately get defensive. So it's developing that balance between, you know, listening to helpful critique and discarding stuff that is, you know, mm -hmm. going to change your work or the vision you have for it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Do you have a favorite point of view that's your natural go-to or does that change with every single story and every book that you're writing? It, it changes. I've mostly done first person and close third. Um, so I, I'm the most comfortable with those. Close third comes the easiest unless I'm like, I've, I've just, I'm working on a, a, a young adult series. The, the first two books came out and they're in first person. I know the character so well. I'm working on the third book now and it's just flying because I've written her for, you know, the last couple of years years. Um, but to start a new book in first person sometimes is difficult. Yeah. And do you find that YA has certain conventions of the genre that you have to conform to that are different to adult fiction? Yes, 100%. I mostly write thrillers where people are doing horrible things to one another. Um, and you could do that a little in YA, but my my YA books are a lot sweeter, I guess. So I, I really had to consider that there are, you know, 14, 15 year olds reading this book and I can't 100% put everything out there. So I've learned a lot about toning toning myself, really, for, for those books. I mean, I think they made them better. I think they made them more accessible to a, a more wide range of readers. And, and also, isn't uh, YA... So Sort of more predominantly first person. Like I know if I think yes. of Harry Potter, mm -hmm. that's third person close, but yeah. I know that most YA books that I've read are, you know, first person. Yeah, middle grade tends to be third person close. So maybe Harry Potter, because of the age, it kind of started out that way. 
Um, why? Because it's like, you know, you're at that age where you're you're discovering yourself. So I think it works so much better if the character, if, if you're hearing the voice of the character when you're reading it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I would say if you're writing a YA book, it's a it's a tough sell if you put it in close third, I think, unless you're like, you know, J.K. Rowling or something. Yeah. Yeah. Some people can get away with anything. Yeah. Just back to what you said earlier. You said you've mm-hmm. been writing her for so long. Yeah. So you're a, a man who's, you know. Right. Yes. Like my age, right about. Yeah. And so you're writing a teenage girl in first <laughs> right. person. Tell us about that. Yeah. It's so it started out as a challenge for myself. Um, I had never written in the voice. I'd never written in the voice of a, a female before. So it was like, let me see if I could do this. You know, I think of myself as an author, almost like an actor, an actor taking on a role. So it was the same thing. You know, I was a teenager in the 1990s when the book takes place. So I drew a lot from my own experiences. And I had a lot of female readers in for early drafts to make sure that I was respectful for the voice, that I was getting the voice right, that I was respectful to the era as well. Um, so it started out as a challenge and then it just became natural. I don't know, I guess like somewhere inside of me, this this character Nico existed and she was just ready to come out. Um, and it's it's been really fun. It's, 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 it's been different. I love that you say, you know, it's like an actor because that's how I take on mm-hmm. writing different perspectives. I think as a writer, yeah. we are like actors, we inhabit a role mm-hmm. and we live this life that we otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't live at all. And that's a great way to approach voice, especially because yeah. nailing a first person mm-hmm. teenage girl's voice, that mm-hmm. must have been quite the exercise. Like, it's- could you give us some tips of how you went about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of, again, drew back from my own self. Her humor is my humor. So I kept the sarcastic kind of nature that I had, um, that I have now, but I had back then even more. So that was easy. It's like I began with her humor. And then, you know, there's a lot of other conventions. She she falls in love with this boy. There was all these things that were out of my comfort zone. Um, But, you know, we're human and it's human experiences. And somehow I, I, I've heard Stephen King refer to it this way. He just leaves his body when he writes. And I kind of do the same. I don't know where I go. Sometimes I go somewhere for like four hours and there's just words on a page. I don't even remember sometimes writing them. And especially this one that happened a lot. So like I just, you know, I put on she she always wears Doc Martens because it's the 90s. So I yeah, I put on my imaginary Doc Martens and you know, four hours later there's words. Yeah, and and that's especially interesting because to be able to write like that, to be able to sort of leave your body and then come back and the writing's there very much means that that critics part of your psyche has mm-hmm. been completely muzzled and muted. And so you're giving yourself permission to just draft without this voice that's constantly like, oh, this yeah. isn't right. This isn't right. The voice, I think that voice is the hardest thing. Sometimes, you know, it's 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 like anything in, in, in any career. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. And as a writer where it's all on your shoulders, you know, literally, if you don't do the work that day, nobody else is going to do it for you. Um, so I think it's so crucial to figure out a way around that voice, whether it's like, meditation or you know for me I said I write in in Central Park I'm just surrounded by nature and beauty it's very calming for myself especially in New York City Um, and that helps me tap in it's harder in my apartment to kind of 
go to that place than it is outside or in a cafe. Yeah, yeah it is amazing how you'll just find your zone um, as mm-hmm. a writer as well. Mm-hmm. And you said you had women reading the character. Were any yeah. of them teenage girls? No, all you know, grown women who were reading it. Like, what was your process there? Because yeah, I, and the reason I ask is in sure. my latest novel, it's like six women in their eighties, and then mm-hmm. one young girl who was fifteen. Um, mm-hmm. and so most of that, I was in touch with my nieces and nephews, and I'd be like, okay, so what's the lingo for this? What would she say for this? Whereas yours is in the nineties, so you knew what teenagers yeah. were saying there. But yeah. still, did you did you have to get teenagers to take a look? Yeah. So my my sort of main reader, um, I was working with um my YA agent Nat Kimber she not to put her on blast but she's my age basically so she grew up in that era um so she was really like the touchstone throughout a lot of it you know um she would really call me out if something was not right basically and randomly I had posted on Facebook, hey, I'm writing this book. It takes place in the grunge era of the 90s. Um, It's in the voice of a a 16-year-old girl. Any information that people could give me. And there was maybe 300 comments. Like it just went on and on and on. And I used like everything. I had a friend who told me, she was like, I'm your makeup person. She told me exactly the makeup. I would never know that. I don't know, you know, makeup from the 90s. Um, So all those things are really helpful. And that Facebook comment group, I, I don't know how I would have written it, honestly, without that. That was really, really crucial for everything and the music, the fashion, just everything 90s and teenage girl 90s. Yeah. And for our listeners, you know, that's an important part of research. Don't be afraid to crowdsource information. Yeah. You know, just put something out there, ask questions. And it's amazing the memories that will come up that mm-hmm. you've forgotten about. Somebody will remember something so clearly that, oh, yeah. you know, when they mention it, you're like, oh my God, yeah, how did I forget about that? But like at the time, you know, you wouldn't have thought about it if they hadn't sort of prompted that. So when it comes to research, don't be afraid to to do that kind of thing. Sure. It's also twofold. It, it stoked people's interest about the book. So then when it came out, people remember, oh, I remember when you were you know, asking about that. And that's so cool that it's coming out now and, and everything. And so, yeah, I think don't you never be afraid, you know, like writers, we tend to be, you know, more so introverted. You don't you know, feel like you want to like, you know, put yourself out there, but put yourself out there these days, like do everything possible. Yeah. And, and people love seeing anything they've given you. They want to search for it in print. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure people were like, oh, wait, I want to see the little nugget I gave to see. Yeah. Where it is. So it becomes like, where's Waldo, right? Right. It's it's the 90s grunge. Where's Waldo? That's, yeah. that's a good that's a good plug for the book. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. OK, back to our questions. Sure. Uh, do you prefer present or past tense? I like both. I think it depends on the book. Um, sometimes present is a little easier for me. I know past is sometimes tends to be easier. Present, it's it maybe it has to do with me leaving my body. It's like I'm in the moment more. But yeah, I, I think it just totally depends on the book for me. I I would say 50-50, my books have been split. Wonderful. Prologues are awesome or prologues are cheating? I like, a, I, you know, for a thriller, I think a prologue is good. It gives that little tease of like something, you know, sinister happening. And then you go back to it. So for thrillers, I would say, yeah, go prologues. Okay. Do you prefer drafting or do you prefer revising? Revising is less revising is less stress for me. I feel like it's already somewhat done. And then I'm just like tweaking a little bit. Um, So I'm I'm calmer when I'm revising. But 
my love is writing. So the drafting part is my favorite part. Do you set like a word count for yourself with every project or is it, you know, different for every project? I aim for about five pages a day when I'm writing. And if I'm around that, you know, four pages, it's good. If, you know, the other day I wrote 15, it just happened. Um, You know, so, but yeah, five pages is my sweet spot. Yeah. 15 pages in a day is a good day. That was like, I'm also on a deadline. So the, I have a, <laughs> the book has to be done by Halloween. So I don't have that much more time it's, to like F around with it. It's, it's amazing how a deadline can inspire you. Yeah, right? no, totally. I love a deadline. Give me a deadline. <laughs> Yeah. Do uh, are you a fan of adverbs and adjectives, or do you try and cut them all out? You know, adverbs. I think you learn early on. They tell you not to never have adverbs. I mean, I remember that in English class. Uh, I'm finding actually for YA, I, I'm I'm leaning a little more towards them. It's a younger voice. They would tend to like use that more. But yeah, you should try to avoid adverbs. It's a little bit cheating. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one good strong verb is worth ten uh, adverbs. Yes, so absolutely. definitely. Absolutely. What, what comes to you first? Is it character or plot or a premise? Um, it depends. My my latest book that's coming out, um, Stalker Stalk, the, which is a thriller. The first thought was literally that title. I just pictured like a stalker that gets stalked. And I was like, oh, that's a perfect title. And that had never happened before. Usually a character kind of starts first. Um, but this one started in a cool way. And then it was just so easy. I, I had like the whole plot. I had the log line of the whole plot basically there. Yeah. That's always the hardest Minute damn one. plot. Exactly. Yeah. I had that right off the fly. That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. What do you prefer? Something like the three act structure or using more action beats that's used in something like Save the Cat? I consider mm, because mm -hmm. you do a lot of film, yeah. I would say you would go more with a Save the Cat structure or no? Yeah. Especially with thrillers because you're, you constantly want that page to be turned. So you're always kind of thinking in story beats. Um, it's been a minute since I've written more of like a character driven piece, maybe more for like a short story. I would do that. That. Um, but yeah, I try to I'm, I'm adapting all of my books as, you know, scripts and, and TV pilots right now. So I'm really in that mindset. Like, does this work also as that project? Also, because I would like some money. So, like, yeah, that, books do that not pay that. Yeah, they don't pay that much. Here's no. the here's the, you know, the tea on that. So, yeah, um, I would like some money. Yeah, the money part is always super helpful mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. this writing business. Yes, yes. Uh, what do you prefer writing dialogue or description? Dialogue, 100 percent. I, I love, 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 love dialogue. I like description and I'm getting, I feel like with each book better at it and I'm leaning in towards it more, but dialogue just comes so easy to me. Yeah, I'm the same. I really love dialogue. Mm -hmm. And then are you a fan of backstory or do you try and avoid it at all costs? I like a backstory. I feel like it, it has to be used right and it can't be overused. Sometimes when there's books where it jumps back and forth and back and forth and every chapter is like that, I find it's like, you a little bit to know, you know a little bit too much where it's going. Um, but yeah, I think backstory placed at the right part is is necessary. Awesome. Do you have any particular writing software that you use, or do you just work on Word? I work on Word. I downloaded Scrivener, Scrivener, um, because I know some people like swear by it, and I'm just so used to Word, it felt like alien. It just didn't feel right. So maybe one day, and then for scripts, Final Draft is like the go-to. You have to. Okay. Final question. And then I'm going to ask uh, you to tell us a bit more about the projects you're working on sure, and what you've sure. got coming out. What part of the writing process are you weakest at and that you had to work the most on? So for me, for example, it mm -hmm. was description. I'm terrible mm -hmm. at description. What 
Mm -hmm. What was your sort of Achilles heel? Description, like I said, I think it, it, it takes me a little more to get into it. And oftentimes in like successive drafts, I'll like expand on the description. So maybe I'll leave it a little more blank in a first draft and then kind of go back to it and like add all the details and everything. So I would agree with that. I would say description is something I'm always working on. And the business end of it, I feel like I could always be better at and I'm always sharpening my, my tools with, you know, just to be, you know, more astute. Yeah, that's the tough part. Because I mean, as yeah. writers, we are not business people. That's why we went into writing. Right. But you, you have know. to be, you have to be like, even Absolutely. with an amazing agent, editor, all these people, it's like, it's your business. It's it's your business first and foremost. Yeah, it's it's running a small business. And yes. so you, yes. you have to develop that. Just something you said earlier, Lee, mm -hmm. is you mm -hmm. said you have a different agent for your YA compared to your mm -hmm. thrillers. Um, yes. How difficult is it for an author to move back and forth between genres? Did they want you to use a pen name when you were yeah. writing in one or the other? How did how did that come about? Yeah, so I think it came about because it I I and my agent realized it's like I'm faster than the publishing industry almost. So I can't just I don't want to book out every two years. Like I'll write three books in that time. And I like writing in multiple genres. My books, I would say, are like literary thrillers, but I have a sci-fi book. I have this YA series. I'm thinking about a horror book that I want to write. So yeah, we thought about a pen name and then thought against it because I thought maybe my name could help it somewhat. I am thinking about a pen name in the future, maybe for like horror and more like basic thriller um just to separate like a like a beach thriller i'm i'm kind of conceiving so i might use a pen name and like an androgynous pen name for that yeah I, you know we sing it more and it's not that authors are doing that to hide their identity because right. it's a really badly kept secret like if you think mm -hmm. in toronto there's craig davidson Oh, yeah, Davis. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he writes in horror and then he writes very literary stuff as well. And mm -hmm, he changes mm -hmm. his name depending on what he's writing. And everybody knows it's the same person. Mm -hmm. It's just not to confuse his readers. And I read recently that the woman who wrote um, The Woman Upstairs, which I think was a thriller. Oh, yeah, is yeah. Now bringing out a, a witch romance book, I think. Oh, OK. Um, in a in a different pen name and everybody sort of knows it's her but again it's also not to confuse her readers but that's very encouraging because I'm struggling to stick mm, to mm -hmm. just one genre at the moment yeah, yeah and I know that we're a kind of nightmare for for our agents and for our publishers to market mm -hmm, mm. yeah I mean I think like if ever you have an idea and it's outside of your genre and you want to try it it's a little safer to try with the pen name. You're you're not losing necessarily your readers that love your you know your style. Um, and maybe you could add on more. I've thought of it too. I for for sci-fi as well because it's so different. It's very hard to get people to read sci-fi that don't read sci-fi. So I'm considering it for 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 that as well. I, am, I haven't I haven't decided, but at some point I'll I'll have a pen name and it won't be a secret at all. Like I'll you know I'll I'll still promote as much as possible under myself because yeah. I want people to read it. Well, yeah. And you, your biggest sort of asset, you know, yeah, you as, yeah. as, as yourself. So, um, okay. So tell us about the books that you've got coming out so that mm -hmm. our listeners can look out for them. Sure. So my new book comes out on Friday, um, September 17th. It's called Stalker Stalked. And it was the one I was talking about before. It's basically about uh, a, a woman. She's a stalker and she finds she's getting stalked as well. So she is obsessed with this reality TV star on her favorite show called Socialites about, you know, socialites in New York City fighting with each other, basically. 
and she just swears by this woman, follows her on Instagram, everything, stalks her in person. And while she's doing that, she starts to feel like somebody may be after her as well. So she has to go through everybody in her life, wondering if it's one of them. She's a farmer rep, so she starts kind of taking too many of her own pills that she's selling. So she doesn't know if it's really happening, if it's not happening, or if potentially the person she's stalking is stalking her too. So it's love yeah. an unreliable narrator. Yes, yeah, she is as unreliable. She is batshit crazy. <laughs> um, so this is a really, really fun book to write. I had written my last thriller, The Ancestor, which was a very literary. Um, it took place during the Alaskan gold rush and in the wilderness. And it was very, very heavy. Um, my, my dad had just died. I was writing sort of about that. Um, so I needed a, a, a lighter, fun kind of thriller. And Stalker Stock was, was perfect at that time to write. Yeah. Wonderful. And then your YA novels? So my YA novels are called Runaway Train um, and the sequel Grenade Bouquets, which is the name of the singer's band, came out. Um, and it's about this girl. It starts off very sad. Her her sister dies um, very uh, unexpectedly of a brain aneurysm. And she just starts to go off the rails. It's the early 90s. She's obsessed with grunge music. And she decides to run away from home to meet her idol, Kurt Cobain, and maybe um, sing in a grunge band and get over her own demons about um, what what happened with her sister and her family. So it's it's it 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 starts sad, but it's it, it's mostly an uplifting series. And each book is a different song title of the mixtape that she was going to give her sister before her sister died. Um, so yeah, it's it's really it's it's an ode to um, one of my favorite um, moments in music history, which was the grunge era. Um, and it was a lot of fun. And then Soul Asylum. Um, which is had the song Runaway Train okayed the use of it in, in the book. So that was that was really exciting too. That that was going to be my next question because yeah. we had a whole episode on what you're allowed to use in a book if you're allowed yeah. to use lyrics, etc. So I was going to say, are you allowed to use a song title as the title of the book? Did you have to get that permission? So for a title of a book, titles um, are not copyrighted. You could use any title. You could call something the Bible. I mean, anything. It, 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 nothing is copyrighted as a title. To use the actual lyrics in the song in the book you have to but it's a lot cheaper than i thought it was going to be um so that made it okay when it's in like a tv series or a movie it's so expensive they're playing it but just the lyrics itself is a couple hundred bucks honestly um but what i did because i couldn't do that for every song in the book you know that would have cost me thousands of dollars so a lot of the songs are referred to they're not like quoted they're, they're mentioned or you use like a part of a lyric and then another part I really, with my editor, went around it. And especially because there's a lot of Nirvana. Nirvana is very, very hard to get the lyrics. Um, we had to go around it that way. But like Courtney Love is a character in the book. She's in a scene and we didn't need to get her permission. <laughs> love it. Absolutely love it. I'm looking yeah. forward to reading this. It's Thank you. Take, take me back to my uh, teenage years as I well. I hope so. so. I hope so. It's got a good, I, I think the majority of the readers actually have been people in their 30s and 40s. Um, and then a couple of teenagers here and there huge nostalgic crossover yeah appeal. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. well lee thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us it's been wonderful chatting to you um and yeah we hope to have you on the show again down the line anytime this this was a blast 
and thank you so much for having me, Bianca. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, 
formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.